Not yet. Oh, there we go. Thanks, guys. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And I'll just pause there. The gospel of God. The good news of God. And so if you're taking notes, uh, I've entitled my sermon this morning, The Good News of God. Okay? The good news of God. I think sometimes when we start with the message of the gospel, our initial uh, starting point is that we try to first identify sin. And we look to ourselves first. And I believe that in order to have an accurate view of ourselves, we first need to look into the face of God. Before we have an accurate awareness of who we are, we need to have an awareness of who He is. So that in order to have the concept of ourselves, we must not begin by looking into the mirror, but we have to look into the face of God. And I'll start with a quote uh, by one of my favorite theologians, John Calvin, and he says the following. He says, No one ever achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, even in Isaiah, I might add. Unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus uh, convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. And so what I want to do this morning as I'm going to be sharing the gospel with us, I see a lot of unfamiliar faces this morning, but I want to start off by saying that the gospel is good news not just for those who are unsaved, but also good news for us who are saved. We celebrate this weekend because of the gospel. And so I'm going to be sharing the gospel. I'm going to try to take a different approach this morning. And so I'm going to start off by sharing and looking at the nature of God. I think many of us have heard about this thing called the attributes of God. Yes? Yes? I hope so. And so um, I'm going to highlight three attributes of God that I'm going to try to use for us to compare ourselves and look at the majesty of who He is. And then also we're going to look at ourselves in light of that. But I want to start off by highlighting a, a not so uh, um, known attribute of God and it's called the simplicity of God. Who's ever heard of the simplicity of God? Besides Mike. <laughs> the simplicity of God. Now, when I say the simplicity of God, I'm not saying that God is easy to understand or that He is a simpleton. Um, what, what the simplicity of God means is that God is not made up of His attributes. He does not consist of goodness, mercy, justice, and power. The simplicity of God is that God is goodness. He is mercy. He is justice. And He is power. Every attribute, attribute of God is identical with His essence. So to make that simple, the idea is that God is not 20% love, 10% goodness, 50% wrath, 
40% kindness. It, the, the idea of the simplicity of God is that God is 100% love. 100% wrath. 100% kindness. God is the fullness of his attribute. Does that make sense to everyone? Okay, so the first one that I want to highlight is God is holy. He is holy. There is no one like him. Isaiah 6 verse 1 to 3 says the following. In the year that, I, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a, upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Ab above him stood the seraphim. Each, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with, the two, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled or full of his glory. So what does the holiness of God mean? What does it mean to say that God is holy? It means that God is above all his creation and entirely, entirely distinct and set apart from them. In other words, God alone is God and everything else is created. God stands alone. Psalm 5 verse 4, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Secondly, the holiness of God means that he is separate from the moral corruption of his creation. And from all that is profane and sinful. God cannot sin. He cannot take pleasure in sin. And God cannot have fellowship with sin. This is what it means for God to be holy. He is in a league of his own. He stands alone. He is separate from creation. Higher than what we can ever fathom or imagine. Pure. Blameless. Without blemish. There has not been a single moment in history or in all of creation that God has ever had a sinful thought. A sinful desire. He's never slipped. He's never fallen short in his character. He is perfect in all his ways. This is what it means for God to be holy. Secondly, God is righteous. Psalm 11 verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God's righteousness speaks about his moral excellence. His works, his judgments, his decrees, they are all perfect. God does not make mistakes. Where we as humans are constantly making mistakes, God is perfect. In everything that he does, he is perfect. And I'll, I'll, I'll say here in this moment, if we read something in scripture that makes us doubt that God's works are perfect, then I would put it out there that we are wrong, not the Bible. If there's something about God's acts in history that makes you uncomfortable, I want to challenge you to maybe consider that you are wrong and that God is right. God cannot fail. God cannot make a mistake. 
He is perfect in all that he does. He's not caught unaware of anything that has ever happened in history. Perfect in all his ways, in all his judgments, in all his works. God has never treated a single human being unfairly. Everything that every single human being has got in history, it's perfect in God's design and what he has decreed. Thirdly, God is love. And I think in today's culture, sometimes I feel like our culture looks at God not by viewing the simplicity of, of God. Right? Our culture amplifies the love of God. God is 80% love, and the other attributes of God are the rest of the 20%. And what we do as people is we pollute the idea of who God is in His love to make it comfortable for ourselves so we feel better about ourselves. Instead of understanding that God's love is pure. 1 John 4, verse 8 to 9. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God's very nature is love. And what, what God's love does is it moves Him to freely and selflessly give himself to others for their, for their benefit or their good. I'll read that again. God's love moves him to freeless, freely and selflessly give himself to others for their benefit and for their good. God's love moves him to freely give of himself to others for their benefit or their good. And I'll add here, sometimes at his own expense. God is love. The whole point that I'm trying to paint for us when we look at the attributes of God is that God is different to us. I'm hoping that you're already starting to measure yourself because um, I think what this morning is going to be, it's going to be like we are on trial this morning. If you've ever been in a court and you've had accusations and charges against you, you know that it's, a, it's very stressful. I've never been in court. I've never done something illegal to get me there. But if you have watched movies and you've seen, you stand there and the judge has to judge you on the evidence, it's a stressful situation, right? And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to put us on trial this morning because I think all of us are on trial. We are on trial. And you'll see why soon enough. Secondly, I want, to look, I want us to look at the nature of man. So we've looked at the nature of God. We've seen that God is perfect. God is holy. God is righteous. God is love. So let's look at ourselves now in light of that. And firstly, we have to see that man is morally corrupt. You thought I was going to come with, uh, man is good. You're the best. You, yeah, man, you are the apple of God's eye, which is not wrong, but uh, the nature of man, our default setting is that we are morally corrupt. God created us good. God created man good in the garden, but we have fallen into spiritual death. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We have all become like one who is unclean. 
And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. This translation actually tones it down a little bit. I'm not going to go into what it actually says, but it's really foul. (laughs) We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. In other words, we are spiritually dead, morally corrupt. And... um, I'll venture out here, I'm not a parent yet, but I, I'm, I'm assuming that us as parents can testify that uh, a two-year-old, you just have to spend some time with a two-year-old to know that there's some corruption there. <laughs> right? There's some corruption happening. Selfish. I want my way, I want to do it now. I don't want to listen. Right? We are morally cor- Corrupt. And I think in our day and culture, there's a message that keeps people from the true uh, salvation that is available to them because our default that we, we preach to people is that you are inherently good. That you are so lovely that God gave His only Son for you. This is a false message. We are not lovely. We are not lovely. We are not good. Our every breath that we take is in rebellion to God. Our default setting is to rebel. Our default setting is to turn away from God. Our default setting is to curse God. Do you know that you will betray God to satisfy your flesh? This is who we are. We are not good. Furthermore, we are guilty and condemned. The Bible teaches us that our inward moral corruption leads us to commit acts against God's righteous standard of a holy, just, and loving God. All of us, without exception, every single one of us, are sinners both by our nature and by the deeds that we have committed. All of us. And I'll put us through a test just now. All of us stand guilty and without excuse before God. All of us. Except one man. Like Anu said, how can one man atone for billions of people? He can because he is the perfect man. The perfect man. Not in the history of humanity has there been another one like Jesus Christ. He is the perfect man. Romans 3 verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. If that's not enough, Romans 3 verse 10 to 12 says, No one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you feel good about yourself? (laughs) Worthless. This is our state. Before God, 
our spiritual standing before our holy God, worthless, corrupt, always in rebellion to God, always looking for an opportunity to curse God. Psalm 130 verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Not a single one of us can stand before holy God. So here's the test for us this morning. For us to examine ourselves. And I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in this moment. Who of you walked in here this morning and thought that, yeah, I'm actually a good person. You know, in comparison to my neighbor, you know, I, don't, I don't swear. Right? I don't watch movies where they're swearing in. I don't drink alcohol. I've never killed anyone. Who of you think that you are a good person? Great, great. Who of us have ever told a lie in our life? Stolen. Who of us have ever murdered someone? (laughs) Well, if I put it this way, in the words of Jesus, if you hate your brother, you have committed murder. So who of us have murdered? Who of us have been adulterous? Well, who of us have looked on another woman with lust or another man with lust? All of us. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. We all deserve God's judgment against us. So if God is a righteous judge... And he should, he should come and he should judge us according to what we've raised our hands on. In a court of law, do you think we would be found guilty? Or would we be found innocent? Guilty. Okay? And as a result of that guilt, hell. Now we've all gone quiet. <laughs> this, is the, this, this is the severity of our sin. The penalty... The penalty of our sin before God is just in light of who He is. I'll, make, I'll, I'll give you an illustration. Let's say, for example, there was a, a broken Volkswagen Beetle standing outside here, and it's rusty. It's knocked up. It's just, man, it's been standing here for 10 years. The wheels are flat. And I walk past, I take a stone, and I scratch it. Do you think that scratch has any implication in the value of that car? Do you think the fine that I would have to pay if, so, if the owner found out that I scratched the car would be as big? As if there was a Ferrari standing in this parking lot and I walk by with a stone and I scratch the Ferrari. Do you think the penalty for a Ferrari would be the same as a broken beetle that I've scratched? No. In the same way, the penalty of our sin is just because we've, we, the value of the person whom we've offended is big. 
We've offended a holy, righteous, just God. And the penalty for our sins is death. Death and separation from the presence of God for all eternity. So what I want us to look at next is that we have actually a great dilemma. It is comforting to know that God is holy and righteous. Right? We worship Him for it. But it should also be terrifying. And it should disturb us. Because if God is good, what will He do with us who are not? What will a good and righteous God do with human beings who are self-centered, inclined to evil, and disobedient? If the judge of all the earth deals with us on the basis of justice, all of us should be rightly condemned. And this leads us to another question. And Ingrid, you can put up Proverbs 17 verse 15. We've got a dilemma here in that the scripture says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. So the question we must ask ourselves is, how can God be just and yet pardon those who should justly be condemned? How can God be holy yet befriend those who are evil? How can God justify sinners like ourselves? If God acts according to his justice, then the sinner must be condemned. But if God pardons the sinner, then his justice is compromised. So God sits with a sort of dilemma in that he can't just pardon sinners, otherwise he would be an abomination to himself. This is the great dilemma that the cross aims to answer, and that is where it comes to the solution that God, that God, that God himself has worked on our behalf. On the cross of Jesus Christ, God's love and God's justice are reconciled. They come together, they meet. God's love and God's justice comes together. And God deals with a great dilemma. In justice... God condemns humanity and demands complete satisfaction for our crimes against Him. But in love, God takes humanity upon Himself, bears our sin, and suffers the penalty that we deserve and dies in our place. So God not only is able to execute judgment and so that his justice is upheld, but God can also act in love by dying on our behalf. The same God whose justice demanded sacrifice or satisfaction for our sin made satisfaction by offering his son in our place. This is what makes the gospel good news. It's that God's perfect justice and His perfect love are put on display on the cross. 
Remember what I said in the beginning about his attributes. It's not at the expense of his justice, he let his love reign on the cross. It's not just love that we see on the cross. We see a just God being righteous, acting in accordance to his attributes. God's love and his justice reconciled on the cross. So let us behold the man upon the cross. Let us behold him. Who is this man, Jesus? Firstly, Jesus Christ is our substitute. He's the perfect son of God. He suffered the judgment of God. He is fully God. He is fully man. Fully God because only God can meet God's righteous requirements. And fully man because we owe the debt. I'll say that again. He is fully God. He is fully man. Fully God because only God can meet the requirements of God's penalty or God's requirement or God's judgment. Fully man because we owe the debt. Secondly, Christ bore our sin. On the cross, our sins were imputed to Christ. In other words, God placed our sins on Christ's account and considered them His. The perfect Son of God who had never sinned, knew no sin, took our sin upon His shoulders. And more than that, God treated Him as if He was a sinner. Christ suffered our curse. To be cursed of God is to become an object of his displeasure and his condemnation. All of us are under God's curse because of sin. Number four, Christ was forsaken in our place. This is probably the one that hit me the hardest because if you understand the Trinity, you understand that in all of history, in all before the foundation of the world, the Trinity has always enjoyed full communion and fellowship. And for a moment, Jesus was cut off from the presence of the Father. Jesus cries out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who has never gone through a moment of ever being outside of the presence of the Father for our sake is separated from the presence of God, from the presence of the Father, so that we may come into communion with the Father. Him being forsaken means that we can come into communion. Number five, Christ suffered the wrath of God for us. The Bible teaches us that God is angry with man because of his unrelenting evil. If you don't believe me, Psalm 7 verse 11 said, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Indignation means anger. God is angry with the wicked every day. That might be a little bit uncomfortable. 
It should be. God's anger is not an uncontrollable, irrational, or selfish emotion, but a result of His holiness, His righteousness, and His love for all that is good. So here's a beautiful thing. Jesus in the garden asked the Father for the cup to pass. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what was in the cup? Since all men are guilty of sin, they deserve God's wrath. In love, however, Christ took the cup of God's wrath that we deserve and drank down every drop until it was completely depleted. And the justice of God against us was fully satisfied. He bore the Father's wrath upon His shoulders. Christ died in our place. In order to save us from the power of death, it was necessary for Him to die in our place. Romans 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. So in other words, as if you were someone that was working for a boss, your payment for your sin is death. You're going to get it. <laughs> All of us is going to get it. All of us is, are, are going to die. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very important to realize this. Christ did not die as a martyr but as the redeemer of sinful humanity. He gave his life. And what makes it even more beautiful is that on the cross, Jesus declared, it is finished. His life wasn't taken from him. He gave his life to accomplish something on our behalf. It means that his suffering and his death has made, has made full payment for the sins of those who believe in Him. And then the last one, the one that we celebrate today, is that Christ was raised from the dead. The resurrection is proof that Jesus was who we said He was. Jesus is the Son of God. This does not mean that Jesus became the Son of God at the resurrection but that the resurrection was the Father's validation that Jesus was the eternal Son of God. It's like the stamp of approval from the Father by raising Jesus from the dead was saying that this is my Son. And more than that, it means that God has accepted Christ's death as full payment for our sin. God raised Jesus Christ because His death satisfied his justice and secured our pardon before God. Romans 4 verse 25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Here's a lovely one for us. The resurrection is proof of our future resurrection. That even though we will die, we will be raised with him. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We have this hope that because Jesus was raised from the dead, that death no longer has a hold on us. That we, if we perish, which all of us will, and I hope you realize that this could be my last words. I could fall down right here, right now. We all live, in a sense, on the edge. I hate heights. And um, I don't know if you go on YouTube sometimes. These, these guys, they climb these sky-rise buildings. And then they take videos from the sky-rise buildings. Like in Dubai, they go to like high buildings. They peer off the side and then they take videos. All of us, in a sense, are living on the edge. Because none of us can sit here and know exactly when we will breathe our last breath. We're all living on the edge. The question I want to pose to you is, what will happen to you when you die? Will you be raised because you have put your faith in Jesus? Or will you have an eternal death that separates you from the Father? Lastly, the resurrection is proof that the world has a Lord and a judge. Acts 17, verse 30 to 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Jesus Christ is Lord. And He is the judge who is coming. And He will judge each of us according to our works. The Bible says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Some will bow out of reverence and awe and love for Him, and others will bow out of fear and trembling at the weight of who He is. You have this side of eternity to decide which type of bowing you want to be or want to do. And that's what I want to put before us this morning. How will you bow this morning? By Christ's death and resurrection, He has accomplished all that is necessary for our salvation. The demands of God's justice were satisfied and His wrath was appeased. God is both just and the one who justifies the wicked. And he can do so because of Jesus Christ. So in other words, the gospel, the cross, the good news of God is that God is both just and the one who is able to justify those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so what should our response be to this this morning? What should our response be? The Bible says we must repent. Repent means to turn away from our old ways, our old way of life and of sin, and to turn to God. It means that we have to change our thinking about who God is and who we are in light of Him. And this leads to a change in our emotions. 
We feel sorrow and shame towards our sin that we once loved. There's a transformation that takes place in our heart. And ultimately, true repentance means turning away from sin in our actions. And we obey God. So that's the call this morning. Repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your old way of life. And secondly, put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Now faith is more than just a belief that God exists. Because even the demons do that. Biblical faith is trust and confidence and reliance upon the character of who God is and what He has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'll give you an illustration. All of us know that if we should jump out of a plane 10,000 feet from the ground, we know that a parachute will work, will help us to hit the ground softly. That's like faith. We know what a parachute does. Trust is putting on that parachute. It's putting your confidence, your trust in that parachute. And so, the call this morning for us is, we turn away from and we turn to God. We believe what He has said in His Word. We believe what He has done on the cross. We believe who He is and who we are in light of Him. And we accept the person of Jesus Christ and what He has purchased on our behalf. We trust Him like we trust a parachute. All of us are jumping out of a plane. All of us are standing on the edge about to jump out of a plane. Some of us believe that we will save ourselves and the way we are going to do that is we are going to jump and we are going to flap our arms. Trust the parachute. Trust the person of Jesus Christ this morning. And so I want to give an opportunity. I want to close with this. I want to give an opportunity for us. I don't know anyone here this morning. In light of what we've heard this morning, maybe every head can be bowed and eye closed. Uh, Ingrid, Ingrid, you can come up so long. If you are sitting here this morning and as I was speaking, in the book of Acts, Peter gets up and he preaches to the Jews. And their response was that they were cut to the heart. They asked, what must we do? What shall we do? And the answer this morning is put your faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sin. Come to the Father who has displayed His perfect love for us that He sent His only Son to die on our behalf, to take our place upon the cross, to satisfy the Father's wrath. So if there's anyone here this morning You've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never confessed Him as your Lord and your Savior. 
Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. Stop trying to save yourself by flapping your arms. God has made provision for us in the person of Jesus to be saved, to know Him. He was cut off so that we can come into communion and fellowship with the Father. What a beautiful privilege for us to stand with unveiled faces before the King of glory, the Holy One, the Righteous One, our loving Father. If that's you this morning, and in this moment your heart is beating fast, you recognize that if you were to walk out here this afternoon or this morning and a car should hit you or you should get into an accident and die, that you don't know where you are going. If that's you this morning, I want you to just raise your hand. You are standing on the edge of eternity. We are all jumping. You've got no security. Is there anyone this morning wants to say, I give my life to you, Lord. I put my trust in you, Jesus, to save me. Maybe you are sitting here this morning and you have previously walked with Jesus. But you've backslidden, you've turned your back, you've walked away from God. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. He can do so because Jesus died. So if that's you this morning, you want to say, I want to come back to you, Lord. I'm coming back to you, God. Maybe just lift your hand as well. Okay. Wonderful. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. That though we don't deserve it, Lord, you lay down your life died the death that we should die so that we can walk in newness of life. We thank you for your cross, God. We thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus. We thank you for what you've done on our behalf. We are bankrupt, God. We bring nothing to the table, God. We bring absolutely nothing except the sin that made it necessary for you to die for us, God. We are unworthy. But you are worthy, Jesus. You've been exalted, high and lifted up. 
So we put our faith and our trust in you this morning, Jesus. Say that you are our portion, our prize, our great delight. You are the one we look to. You are the one that we put our faith and our trust in. We throw ourselves upon you this morning, Jesus, as the only one who can bring us before the Father. Your blood has made a way for us that we can enter in, that we may know you, God. So what I want us to do um, as we respond,